Well, good morning, church. How's everybody today? Doing well? It's a good deal. How many people are sitting there thinking, we thought we got rid of this guy? Here I am again. Uh, it's, it's always a privilege, honor to be here with you. Uh, as Chad said, the circumstances aren't great. We hope that Jed uh, recovers fully and well and uh, that it goes, everything goes smoothly and he's back here real soon. But um, definitely keep him and his family in your prayers and we'll have a special prayer for him here at the end of our service today. But uh, it's a good day to be here. It's a blessing. We're getting some rain that we, that we probably need, although I prefer the sun and warmth, but uh, heading into fall now, so that's coming. And we're now in week three of a 10-week sermon series based off of the Sermon on the Mount. And we find the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. And this was a sermon preached by Jesus. Henry Bosch wrote the following. Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus for only three. Yet the influence of Christ's three-year ministry infinitely transcends the impact left by the combined 130 years of teaching from these other men who were considered the greatest philosophers of history. Jesus painted no pictures, yet some of the finest paintings of Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo da Vinci received their inspiration from him. Jesus makes an impact, amen? amen? We know that. And the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever preached, and it was preached by Jesus himself. And I've always said that a sermon that doesn't challenge you is nothing more than hot air and fancy words. But Jesus definitely threw down the challenge in the Sermon on the Mount. He challenges us to live a lifestyle that's revolutionary, a lifestyle that's radical, a lifestyle that is spirit-filled in him. And if we're going to follow Jesus, then our lives will look different than that of our culture, right? The way that we talk will be different than the way the world talks. The people we hang out with will be different than the people the world would choose to hang out with. The, the use of our social media will be different than we see in the world. We would view our world differently. We would view our lives differently when we belong to Jesus. And Jesus, we talked about a couple of weeks ago, started off this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, by talking about the things that makes us blessed or blessed if you're a King James scholar, right? What's the world say makes you blessed? Money, cars, position, jobs, right? Jesus says it's different. Jesus says that being blessed doesn't mean what our culture says it means. According to Jesus, being blessed means that we approach him with humility and brokenness. Being blessed means that we have a hunger and a thirst for his word and for his will. Being blessed means that we stand tall when we're being persecuted because of our faith. And being blessed means that we develop a forgiving heart and a peaceful life. Who in here would like to have a peaceful life? Right? Peace is very valuable, right? It can be found only in Jesus. And let me challenge you this morning. If you are in a state of peace in your life or in your family right now, thank God for that. And use your time to help somebody who isn't experiencing peace. You can help them find peace, especially if they don't know Jesus. That's what being blessed means. One of the greatest martyr theologians of the last century was a German guy named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And he was actually put to death by Adolf Hitler. But here's what this man said about Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Humanly speaking, it is possible to understand the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways. But Jesus knows only one possibility. Simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting or applying, but doing it and obeying it. That is the only way to hear his words. He does not mean for us to discuss it as an ideal. He really means for us to get on with it. Who here is ready to get on with it when it comes to God's word? You know, sometimes as a church, maybe we could be guilty of coming and hearing a sermon, or maybe we come back on Wednesday night and we study the word together and we know the word, but are we actually doing the things the word says when we're not at church? Are we living that lifestyle out there? You know, there's a story that we told back in the James series when we were preaching it this winter about a man who has a heart attack and he winds up at the emergency room and they put him in the room, still having the heart attack, and the doctor is down in the office playing solitaire on the computer and the man dies. You see, the doctor had all the knowledge, experience, and training to save that man's life, but he chose not to apply it and the man died. You see, hopefully no doctor would ever do that. But as Christ's followers and people who know God's word, we know the Bible. We have the knowledge in our hearts and in our minds. Are we using that knowledge and applying it out there, not just to save lives here, but to save lives for eternity? Are we ready to get on with it? Are we willing? You know, as we look at the Sermon on the Mount today, let's challenge each other, challenge yourself, not just to hear these words from Jesus, but to live them, to live them. Last week, we said that although living the Christ lifestyle it leads us to being blessed, we're not blessed just so that we can have blessings. We're blessed so that we can be a blessing to other people, right? We're saved to serve. We're called to be salt and light in a world of darkness. Here's the question. Are you being a blessing to other people? Are you being a blessing in your family? Are you being a blessing at your workplace? Are you being a blessing in your neighborhood, even with the HOA, right? You know what I'm talking about. Are you being a blessing in the church? Today we're going to look at the next section of Scripture from the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to look at verses 17 through 20. And today's sermon is titled, Righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous. What does righteousness mean? Well, it's a very simple definition. It means being right with God. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that when Jesus started his ministry, he had a lot of adversaries. He had a lot of people going after him. The Jewish leaders were threatened by Jesus because the people loved listening to him. He was a threat on their power and their position. In Mark chapter 1, we read this. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. You know, most of the clashes that Jesus had with the Jewish leaders was over his interpretation of the law. They took a hard stance on their views. And they were always out to try to catch Jesus up in something, weren't they? They were trying to catch him up in a technical violation of Roman law or maybe a violation of the Old Testament law. They wanted to catch Jesus up in something so they could discredit him with the government and with the Jewish people. And in fact, they wanted to charge him with treason and disobedience. But in the end, they charged him with blasphemy. 
And you know one of the rumors they started about Jesus? They said, this man is against Mosaic law. He doesn't believe the law. He's against it. And if a man was against the law, he couldn't be a man of God. He certainly couldn't be anointed by God, let alone the anointed one from God. So when Jesus finally gets to preach his first full sermon, here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. When Jesus uses the phrase law and prophets, he's referring to all of Jewish scripture, or what we call today in our Bibles, the Old Testament. And the Jewish name for this body of teaching is the Tanakh. But the early Hebrew language didn't have vowels. So in their writings, it would appear as T-N-K, Tanakh. And the T stood for Torah, the N stood for Nevim, and the K stood for Ketuvim. And the Torah included the first five books of the Bible. These were the books of the law. This is where Moses recorded the Ten Commandments and all other laws that govern God's people. Then we see the Nevim, which is a, a word that refers to the prophets. These were the spokespersons, the people who spoke for God. And of course, in the Hebrew Bible, we have the former and latter prophets. And the Ketuvim were, was referred to as the writings. This was the other books of the Bible, like Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and all the historical books. But in the first century, all these texts and all these scripture was referred to as the law and the prophets. So when Jesus gave what we call the greatest commandments, which are love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, when he said that, he went on to say in Matthew twenty-two forty, all the law and the prophets, all that other stuff, hang on these two commandments. So what Jesus is saying here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, what he's saying to the people gathered around on the shores of the Sea of Galilee listening to the Sermon on the Mount, he's saying, I stand with God's word. No matter what you've heard about me, no matter the rumors that say I'm against the law, here's what I'm telling you, I stand with God's word. And I hope, church, that in our lives today, we can say the same thing. But we don't need to just say that we stand with God's word. We need to live it. Amen? Does the way that I live my life when no one else is around demonstrate that I stand with God's word? Those are questions that we need to ask ourselves. But Jesus is going even further here. He says, not only am I in, in support of God's word to you, I've come to fulfill God's word to you. So it's not just I stand with God's word. But he's saying, I stand as God's word. And of course, they wouldn't fully understand what he was meaning until Calvary, right? The disciples would finally understand some of this after the resurrection. But as Jesus is speaking, a lot of this stuff might not be real clear to the hearers. Isn't that the way it is sometimes in our walk with Christ? Maybe we're hit with something out of the blue. Maybe we are learning a lesson we didn't intend to be in the middle of. Maybe God has laid something on our hearts and it just doesn't make a lot of sense right now. But when we trust God and look back, we can sometimes say in those situations, I see God, what you're doing here. I see what you were doing. I see how you were working in that situation even when I didn't know what was going on. Anybody else ever dealt with that? It happens, right? This morning, if you're dealing with something in your life right now, 
Whether it's a, a family issue or a job issue or a financial issue, spiritual issue, whatever it is, trust God and know that he will work. Because we can even in the midst of those situations see his hand. Jesus says here, I stand with God's word. And that's a powerful statement. And then he goes on in verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus is making the point here, God has spoken and he's faithful to his word. Jesus is saying that absolutely all scripture, all of God's word that we possess can be trusted, it is true, and it will come to pass. Do we believe that? We believe that about God's word. The New Living Translation says this, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So we believe that God has spoken. We believe that he is and he will always be faithful to his word, every single part of it. That's a promise you could take to the bank. And Jesus goes on to highlight and emphasize how important it is that we live God's word, but that we teach it to those who don't know it. That we teach God's word instead of the man-made doctrines. We read in verse 19, Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You know, it's good when you're speaking to hear a few amens because it means the crowd is with you, right? That, that's a... That's a that really, thank you, thank you very much. That, that relieves some pressure when you're up here because people are with you. And I imagine as Jesus is preaching the Sermon on the Mount and he's talking about the law and how it's important and how he didn't come to abolish it, I imagine he's getting some amens, don't you? Imagine people are nodding with him in agreement and they're saying, hey, this is good. We stand with God's word. We believe God is faithful to his word. I believe people were probably nodding in agreement and probably smiling and saying, this guy's really preaching what we want to hear. Then he gives them a gut punch. And he says in verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Ouch, right? Ouch. They're probably thinking, this guy just gave us the bait. Now he's jerked the line and he's set the hook. They're probably kind of calmed down, right? They probably got quiet. They, the amens suddenly stopped. And now they're thinking, what's this guy talking about? How could anyone have a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? I mean, after all, aren't they the most spiritually minded people around us? That's probably what they were thinking. Now imagine there were a few Pharisees in the crowd, maybe some teachers who were high-fiving each other and saying, that's right, Jesus, you know how righteous we are. You know how we have it all together. You're right on board with us. Maybe this guy's not so bad. But church, we live on this side of the cross. We've read the book, and we know how Jesus interacted with these Pharisees, don't we? He was not paying them a compliment. He was about to expose their hypocrisy. How did they become so hypocritical anyway? You ever wondered about that? How, how did they get to that point? Well, let me just tell you a little bit about them. Sometime between the book of Malachi and Matthew, so from the Old Testament to the New Testament, there was a period of time where there was no revelation from God. 
And that's a period experts will tell you somewhere between four and 500 years. So during this time, there were two rabbis, Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Halil, who came to the Jewish scene, and they began to teach. Rabbi Shammai lived from about 50 B.C. to 8030. So he was alive during Jesus' lifetime. And he was known as someone who strictly interpreted the law. Rabbi Halil was born in Babylon, but he went on to Jerusalem to study the Bible, and he died in A.D. 10. And his interpretation of the law was much softer and more insightful. And these men were responsible for coming up with what's known as the Mishnah, which included all rabbinical teaching. And, and trust me, there was a lot of extra teaching and a lot of extra laws laid down on people in these teachings. And by the time of Jesus' day, this had grown into a great following. And there were a lot of people who were students of these teachings, and they became known for their emphasis on righteous living or right living. You know what the word Pharisee means? It comes from a word that means separated. So these people became so obsessed with living the right way that they became very legalistic. And they were so separate, they wouldn't even bend down and help a man who was beat half to death by robbers on the road to Jericho. You remember that story. They were so legalistic, so separate, they couldn't even do that. And if you're familiar with the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees were constantly at odds with Jesus. And Jesus was constantly at odds with the Pharisees. And in Matthew 23, he admitted that although they were the interpreters of the law for the people, he says in verse 3, they do not practice what they preach. And he calls them over and over again hypocrites and blind guides. But to the people of this day, they were the religious leaders. They were the ones doing everything right and looking down on everybody else who didn't. They were the righteous ones. So what does Jesus mean when he says, if you guys want to get to heaven, then you better be better than they are. He's making them think there must be more than just being the perfect Jew or doing things the right way. Because if the Pharisees can't make it to heaven and we can't be as righteous as they are, then we have no, no chance. What's the point? Here's the point. Here's the point Jesus was making. Righteousness does not come from what you do. Amen? Righteousness doesn't come from what we do. There's a Sunday school teacher who was teaching the, the class and he said, what if I sold my house, sold my car, had a big yard sale, and gave every dime to the church? Would that get me into heaven? Kids said, no. He said, very good. What if I mowed the church grass and cleaned the church building every week and kept things tidy and organized? Would that get me into heaven? The kids said, no. He said, okay, how about if I started to love all animals and I gave candy to kids every single week and I love my wife and family perfectly. Would that get me into heaven? The kids said, no. So the teacher was feeling pretty good about the job he had done teaching these kids. So he asked the question, what does get, how, how do I get into heaven? And a five-year-old boy shouted, you got to be dead. <laughs> That's true. That's a sermon for another sermon series. Church, we cannot work our way to heaven. Can I get an amen on that? 
We cannot work our way to heaven. And that's what Jesus is saying. Righteousness doesn't come from what you do. Righteousness doesn't come from what I do. And if there was groaning in the crowd coming from the people, now the Pharisees are starting to groan a little bit, right? What does he mean about this? What, what does he mean righteousness doesn't come from what I do? My obedience doesn't bring righteousness? We'll talk about that a little later in our sermon series. So come back for that. But for today, remember this. It's not your obedience. It's not how you act. It's not the religious duties and ceremonies you perform. It's not about the good deeds you do. That's not where righteousness comes from. Laws are important, amen? Laws are very important. Think about it. Laws give us order in our society. Can you imagine how chaotic life would be if we didn't have any laws? Just think about that for a minute. You know, laws exist to protect the weak and the vulnerable. They exist to give us structure in our life and families and workplaces and schools. Just think about your commute to work tomorrow. How crazy would it be if there were suddenly no stop signs and no stoplights? Plenty of people drive like there aren't, but just think if everybody did, right? God's law, church, gives us specific ways that we are to please him. And even though we know these laws are important, none of us can keep them perfectly. I have an example for you. Who in here knows the speed limit on I-64? I know because my wife reminds me all the time, but do you guys know? What? 70. 70, right. Has anybody ever gone 71 or 72 or 85? I mean, <laughs> amen. amen, thank you. If laws could be followed perfectly all the time, I wouldn't have a job as a lawyer. And... Clearly, I'm not starving to death, so you know that happens. You can laugh, it's okay. When we compare our lives to what the law demands, we know we fall short of God's standard every single time. We can't do enough to be righteous in God's eyes. It's not about doing, church. It's about what's already been done by Jesus. Can I get an amen on that? Can I get a better amen on that? Amen. All right, you're with me. But even though we know these things, sometimes even good Christian people can still have in their minds that they need to do something to earn God's love. That their entire lives are spent working harder and harder to gain God's favor. But you know what? If you're a Christian this morning, you've already gained God's favor. And working harder, we want to do that because we want to work in the kingdom. But that's not how we're saved. That's not how we get right with God. One of the most famous Pharisees talked about this very thing. A guy named Saul, who later became Paul. And he explains how he thought what he did or what he had done would count for his own righteousness. Listen to what he says in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 6. If someone thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Paul discovered that all his, all his good works as a religious leader amounted to nothing. And actually, he uses the Greek word skubulon, 
which means animal dung. Isn't that nice right before lunch? <laughs> kind of gross, right? That's what it means. He says everything he'd worked for in the early years of his spiritual journey wasn't worth animal dung when it came to pleasing God. And that's a huge declaration from a very prominent Pharisee. And he goes on to say, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage, scubalon, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So what Jesus is saying and what he continues to say through his Sermon on the Mount and what the Apostle Paul discovered is that righteousness comes only through faith in Christ. It comes when we stand with God's word, when we believe that he's faithful, and when we trust him with our lives. Righteousness comes to us through our relationship with Jesus. We don't get it on our own. And Paul tells us in Romans 3.22, that this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Comes from him, church. And then look at this. Here's what we do. Our obedience, that is a product of that righteousness. It's not how we're made righteous. But because we have righteousness in Christ, we're obedient to what he tells us. It comes from that. Because we know we are saved by grace through faith, for good works. Amen? It's Ephesians 2. So you might be wondering, what about the law? What about the Old Testament? Does that mean I don't have to follow this anymore? Does that mean it doesn't matter? Should I waste my time reading it? And we're, those are very good questions. And I want you to stay tuned for those questions because they're going to be answered uh, through this rest of this series. But for today, I want to leave you with a quote from Philip Yancey. This book he wrote called The Jesus I Never Knew. This will kind of give you a hint at where we're going. Thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters. We are all desperate, and that is in fact the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. Church, are you thankful for absolute grace today? Yeah. Amen. I know I am. And when we rely on Christ for our righteousness, we no longer have to fear the penalty of the law. We've fallen short of God's standard. We always will. But Christ justifies us through his blood. And Christ gives us the Holy Spirit that dwells in us, that helps us, that guides us, that comforts us. He's called the comforter in Scripture. Our relationship to God's law completely changes when that happens. And we need His grace to be right with Him. The only way we'll ever be right with Christ is through His grace. A.W. Tozer says this, The only sin Jesus ever had was ours, and the only righteousness we can ever have is His. Amen? We now move to the response time of our service this morning. And if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus, I invite you to do that today. 
If you've never been baptized into him, to have your sins washed away and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, I encourage you to do that today. We know it's so important. It's the first thing Jesus did when he started his ministry, and baptism's the last thing he commanded before he ascended to heaven. If you've never taken that step or you have questions or you want prayer, we're here to help you with that. If you're here this morning and you are a baptized believer and you're searching for a church home or you're looking to get plugged in somewhere, we hope that we are the end to your search. If you want to talk about ways you can get plugged in, a group you can join, ways here to serve, we'd love to have the opportunity to talk with you about that too. And if you're here this morning and you have a prayer concern, something going on in your life where you need the prayers of your brothers and sisters, that's what we're here for. Or if you have some good news you want to share, who here wouldn't love to hear good news, right? So I'm going to go down here as the, when the band leads the song here in just a moment. Come talk to me if you have something you want to talk about. But for now, if you'll stand, we'll close us out in prayer. Father, we come before you this morning with humble hearts. Thankful, Lord, for the opportunity we have to open your word. And Father, for your son to teach us through his sermon. Father, I just pray that you help us to understand in our daily walk that righteousness comes only from you. Father, we can't earn it. There's not enough good we can do. We can't cancel out sin by doing more good things. Father, we're only saved through your grace. Father, I pray that you help us realize that. I pray that you help us relax. And Father, help us to know that we can be saved through your Son. God, I pray that once we recognize that, it will get us a desire within us to serve you, to be obedient to you, to walk with you. And Father, most importantly, to show others to you. Lord, we are living in a world that's lost and dark. Help us to be the light. Help us to be the salt. Help us, Father, to be the reason that other people can find righteousness through you. We thank you so much for the opportunity to be here today. And Father, if there's someone here this morning struggling with anything at all, I pray, Father, that we will be able to help them, pray with them, and comfort them. And Father, we just give you the glory for all things. It's in your Son's name we pray.